Turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3. Our focus will be on verses 1 through 5. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you, works miracles among you, do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then. That as those of faith. Who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying. In you. Shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant your Holy Spirit to accompany the preaching of of the Gospel to the glory of Christ so that we do not boast in anything of ourselves, but that all that we have is by Christ's work and His alone. In His name we ask this. Amen. In 2.17, Paul responded to a perceived accusation from the Judaizers. Namely, that the doctrine of justification by faith alone makes Christ a servant of sin. Paul's opponents are slandering the Gospel as making nothing of the law and obedience unto God. And so we see that Paul flipped that very accusation back on his accusers. And now, he takes the offensive and puts forth a barrage of questions himself. He calls the Galatians to the dock. And he puts forth these five rhetorical questions in which he shows their guilt and the ludicrousity of this false gospel. He has demonstrated the truth of the Gospel with his own experience in chapters 1 and 2, and now with these questions, he uses their experience. 
Paul asks these five questions to make their folly evident. That's clear with verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. And then further, verse 3. Are you so foolish? You notice that verse 3 assumes a certain answer to verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? These are not questions that you have to really think about. He's assuming they're answering them in a certain way all the way through. When one's on the receiving end of these kind of questions, the head is not lifted up and tilted in deep thought. It's hung low in deep shame. No doubt every one of us have been on both sides of the parent asking the child, what were you thinking? And that's what Paul is doing with these questions. As children, none of us have any difficulty proving the maxim of Solomon. That folly is bound in the heart of the child. Such questions are best answered, no excuse, sir. And likewise, with Paul here, these are chastening questions. They sting. But their folly left in check would sting far more. So the first question is prefaced by this exclamation, Oh, Foolish Galatians. This is perhaps the most startling form of address from one Christian to another, save that instance where Jesus addressed Peter as Satan. In both instances, the cross was being denied in some way. If you want to get a talking to by the Christ or one of His apostles, toy around with the cross. Oh, Foolish Galatians, or as the Amplified Bible strains to make plain, Oh, you poor and silly and thoughtless and unreflecting and senseless Galatians. J.B. Phillips paraphrased it this way, You dear idiots of Galatia. I don't think Paul would have objected to Philip's translation in that instance. Now remember that throughout the Scripture, folly is not so much a matter of the head as the heart. Folly is ethical. It's moral. Folly is eating forbidden fruit. It's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And he does so not because he's so dim-witted as to miss what creation is testifying to, but because his heart is hard. The issue isn't that the Galatians are intellectually dim-witted, but spiritually hard-hearted that they miss these obvious truths. The address coupled with the question, who has bewitched you? amounts to Paul exclaiming, what you've done is so foolish that the only explanation can be that you must be under a spell. 
Some have speculated that by this, Paul is referring to the demonic forces that are behind the false teachers. And no doubt there are demonic forces behind this false teaching. But that's not what Paul is getting at with this question at all. It's meant to be understood in light of the exclamation, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? By mentioning bewitching, Paul isn't speaking spiritually, but satirically. He's ridiculing the folly of these Galatians. That they would try to stand before God upon the basis of their own works is so foolish because it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now how is that so? In the preaching of the Gospel. As Christ is preached, He is graphically placarded before them as crucified. Preaching the Gospel means preaching Christ, the whole Christ, all of Christ. That He is the eternally begotten Son of God. It means preaching that the eternal Son of God became flesh. Preaching the Gospel involves His incarnation, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His session, and His promised return. All of that. Christ is the Gospel. But central in it all is the cross. You see that here with this statement. In the preaching of the Gospel, Christ is publicly portrayed, He's placarded before men as crucified. Remember, Paul explained to the Corinthians that he preached Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.23 goes on in the next chapter to say, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. So yes, you must have all of Christ. The crucifixion of the, cro- of, of the Christ would be emptied of salvation if it were not the resurrection, resurrected and reigning Christ who was crucified. Yes, we need all of Christ, but yet in the, in the Gospel, the cross remains central so that P.T. Forsyth was not exaggerating whenever he said, Christ is to us just what His cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what He did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what His cross is. You do not understand Christ until you understand the cross. And so they've seen Christ crucified in the preaching of the Gospel. What kind of folly than to think they could merit any standing before Christ with their own works in light of that. Do you see their folly? Do you see your own? You may not formally deny the Gospel. Peter didn't either. When he was in Galatia, his creed remained in check. But there's some Galatian bound in the heart of all of us. And the denial 
the slippery slope begins with our behavior. Fear of man, seeking of glory, pride. Do you not behave in so many ways, on so many days, as if your good works cause you to stand a little bit taller than your brother's next to you? Because you might have your theology a little bit better and more refined. Or you volunteer and serve and love in some certain way. You think you stand a little bit taller before God because of this. Or if it's not that way. Who of us has not? After sinning in some way that has broken our hearts. Thought that it's really up to us to clean ourselves up. Before we can really enjoy communion and fellowship with our Lord again. Oh, we foolish Meridianites. Christ has been crucified. Consider your works appropriately in light of that fact. On to the second question, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This second question carries such weight that it settles the matter entirely. If Paul were limited so that he could only respond to the Galatian heresy with a tweet, he could do so with this single question And in the debate, the force of this question is seen in the words, let me ask you only this. This is the only question that's needed. I could end the letter right here. This is the only one necessary for it to become self-evident to you. The true nature of this debate. Again, this shows why the Galatians are so foolish. This isn't some complex matter. Paul can end the controversy with a single, simple question. And with this, he gets to the central theme of this barrage of of questions. How does the Spirit relate to these matters? Works of the law, hearing by faith. How was it that they received the Spirit? Not by works of the law but by hearing with faith. They didn't pull the Spirit down. He was graciously given. And what was it that they heard and believed? This hearing by faith. What is it that they heard and then believed in? You see how the two questions relate now? Oh, you foolish Galatians, Christ was publicly placarded before you in the preaching of the Gospel. How was it that they received the Spirit? By believing that message that they had heard. When Peter preached to the household of Cornelius, we read in Acts 10, while Peter was still saying these things, preaching the Gospel of Christ crucified, 
While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The reception of the Holy Spirit on that day settled the matter. And it would again. At the Jerusalem Council, Peter recalls this. Acts 15, 7-11 After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You notice the order Peter put that in? We believe we'll be saved just as they were not. He doesn't say, we believe they'll be saved just as we were, because then the law might be brought into this equation. He says, no, we believe we'll be saved just as they were, by Christ and Christ alone. Why is the receiving of the Spirit so decisive? Well, as Peter just put it, because in doing so, God bore witness to them. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. This is what Paul will go in to bring out, on to bring out in, in chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul will shortly tell them in 3.13-14 that Christ redeemed them from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There's where he, in case there were some that were just that dense, obstinate in their rebellion, made clear he's received through faith. 3.14 Christ was crucified, bearing the curse for our sin, so that the blessing of Abraham 
and might come to us, and so that the Holy Spirit might be received by us. These are not two distinct, separate, unrelated blessings. They go together. These two graces flow from Christ crucified and say that those who receive the Spirit also, in that very receiving of the Spirit, are evident partakers of the blessing promised to Abraham. As part of His promise to Israel concerning Israel's redemption, the children of Abraham, Joel said, it shall come to pass afterward. Or the way that Peter takes those words in Acts, it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. He's speaking about redeeming Israel, His people, the children of Abraham. And then He says, it means a Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And just shortly following that, Joel 2.32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. You remember that was Peter's text for his Pentecost sermon. But it was very likely he did not understand the depth of all flesh and everyone until he preached the Gospel to Cornelius and his household. Isaiah 44.3 Again to Israel, this is promised. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour My Spirit on your offspring and My blessing on your descendants. Do you see the same Two blessings that Paul mentioned in 3.13 and 14. Blessing and the Spirit. So the Spirit's being poured out on the Gentiles means that they've not only been forgiven and cleansed and stand just before God, but that they participate in the promise of blessing made to Abraham. And further, the Spirit acts as a seal and a pledge. A guarantee. That all the promises that are in Christ are theirs. Paul tells the Ephesians, In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you heard it, and when you heard it, You believed in Him. When that happened, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Upon hearing the Gospel, they believe in Christ. The Christ preached in the Gospel, Christ crucified. And on believing, 
They receive the Spirit as a seal and a guarantee. As the seal, as this impression, this mark of ownership by God. And then, as a guarantee. Now to get the import of this, remember, Peter said that the the Spirit is going to be poured out in the last days. The Spirit's being poured out is this act of eschatological redemption. This act of end of days redemption with all things being made new and new creation breaking into the present such that we are born again the first fruits of new creation. So the Spirit's being poured out speaks to the end breaking into the present. It's the guarantee that the Gentiles also in Christ will inherit the earth made new as the children of Abraham. If you've received the Spirit, you receive all because the Spirit puts you into union with Christ in whom God's every promise is yes and amen. The Spirit is received through the hearing of the crucified Christ. We do not pull the Spirit down by our own works. He's graciously poured out because of Christ's work. So it's obvious that the next question is related to this. Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Some take this verse to refer to sanctification, progressive sanctification, or growth in Christian maturity. It's easy to see how the question can be taken that way. You've begun this way, are you being perfected this way? So many teach this, you begin by Jesus but you advance by your own work, your own effort. There's something of this error that Paul confronts in Colossae. He asks them, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So they won't say it this way, but for many, Jesus is the ABCs of the Christian life. You really begin to advance. Whenever you master certain spiritual disciplines and you know and exercise your spiritual gifts, that's where you really begin to grow, become spiritual. And this is all contrary to the life of faith that Paul spoke of in 2.20. This is the life He lives. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. 
Later, Paul will command them, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This teaching of self-sanctification is vile enough. But here, Paul is dealing with something even more repulsive than that. He has not left the central theme of justification here. See, you might begin with Jesus, according to the Judaizers. But you need to be perfected. You need to really come into your justified state by your own efforts. You see, if justification is by works of the law, you never get there. You're always working towards it. You may begin, but you have to be perfected. Jesus is a good start. He is not the finish line. And kind of the encapsulating command that really signals all of this is that to be circumcised. That's why I think he uses the phrase that he does here in particular. Not works of the law in this instance, but are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Remember in Ephesians 2.11 where he's wanting to make this contrast between Jew and Gentile where he speaks of the circumcised as those who are circumcised in the flesh with the circumcision made by hands. It's all fleshly. It relates to man's works, man's doing. The flesh often has the connotation of sin throughout Scripture, but here it is reference in reference to works of the law done in the power of the flesh for self-justification. So Paul is saying, are you so foolish that having the Spirit, you think the Spirit who's a seal, the Spirit who's a guarantee, that having the Spirit, you think you can advance beyond that by self-effort? So far, it hasn't been too difficult to see the connections between Paul's questions. But this next one makes you wonder, does it have any, any relation to them at all? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? There are a variety of possible connections, but we have to be clear as to what Paul is saying here first. The ESV has suffering, the Christian Standard Bible. Did you experience so much for nothing? Experience is a legitimate translation for the word here. Verse 5 would fill out this experience further then. He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. So, did you experience the Spirit's being poured out, being received by you? Did you experience that all for nothing? While the word can be translated experience, though, it is predominantly, overwhelmingly, in Scripture and in ancient literature, meant to communicate the experience of suffering, such that if the author wants to mean just suffering in neutral, or an experience neutral, or just an experience that's good, the context is just so heavenly laden that you can't understand it any other way, or there's a qualifying word attached to the Greek word here for suffering, to make it clear that it means experience. I think it's clear that 
Paul intends suffering. But then the question is, how does suffering relate to receiving the Spirit and works of the law and hearing by faith? A couple of verses that follow in Galatians that I think make clear what they readily understood here. 5.11, Paul asks, But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, if it's circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. 6.12, he says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. That's the same use that we just saw here. What does it mean to make a good showing in the flesh? Who would force you to be circumcised? Why do they do this? Only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In contrast to these false teachers, Paul says of himself, 6.17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. If Paul had preached circumcision, he would not have experienced the persecution that he did. Whenever he preached to these Galatian, these Galatians, he was driven out of Antioch, Pisidia. He was threatened with stoning at Iconium. He was stoned at Lystra, bearing on his body the marks of Jesus for his preaching of the gospel. And the reason that came about was not simply whenever he first preached the gospel to the Jews and they rejected it, but then upon turning to the Gentiles such that it is vividly evident that right standing is before God upon the basis of Christ and Christ alone, it's upon that instance that it was Jewish leaders who instigated the persecution of Paul. Acts 13, 46-52. And so now the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are seeking to be perfected by the flesh which foremost among other things would involve circumcision. And if this is the case, if you're justified before God, yeah, you need Jesus, but you need to do works of law as well. If that's the case, there's no more reason for persecution. So you see the question, did you suffer so many things in vain? What was the reason for it? If all along you need to do works of the law, there's no more offense. No more persecution. Remember, Jewish religion was protected under Roman law at this time. There's no persecution if you're a Jew. But the question... It's much more serious than this. If they're seeking to be justified by works of the law, then any previous suffering for Christ means nothing because, he says in 5.4, you're severed from Christ. 
you who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You prove to be those who never trusted in Christ. You're severed from the Christ you professed. Made evident that you're not His, such that on that day, He will not say, depart from me, I used to know you, but depart from me, I never knew you. Then he holds out hope that this is not what will be true of them, if indeed it was in vain. These words have the same effect as the words that follow that warning that we see in Hebrews chapter 6. There's a similar warning there, and the author goes on to say, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. That's why Paul is addressing and speaking to brothers in such a way here. Because he's hopeful of better things. Paul ends by returning to his main thesis. Verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's the same main thesis, but he's coming at it from a different angle. Before, He was looking at it from the perspective of man and his reception of the Spirit. Now, it's from the perspective of the Father and his supplying the Spirit. And the present tense calls for them to think of how does God work? How does God act? But even though he's using the present tense, I think it's clear Paul intends for them to recall how did we see the Spirit act whenever the Apostle of Christ was among us. Listen now to Paul's fuller explanation of his preaching ministry as he gives it to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5 through I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul preaches the crucified Christ and the Spirit acts in evident power. That's how God works. Not by works of the law, but hearing by faith. We do not merit the Spirit. He's graced upon us by the Father in the Son. The Belgic artist Hendrik Lays painted a work, Women Praying at a Crucifix near St. James in Antwerp in the 19th century. It's a work of 
realistic art. Great detail is given to the women praying to give the appropriate dress of the time. But upon close examination, you know what's missing? The crucifix. I'm no fan of the crucifix. But this is telling. Women praying at a crucifix. And all the focus is upon the women praying and not the Christ sought. So it begins in all of our hearts. This is the bit of Galatian that's in every one of us. Before sola fide is ever formally rejected. The slide begins with an emphasis on our piety. Our work. Instead of the work of Christ. So it is that we become more consumed with ourselves praying than the Christ we pray to. Many are sucked into cults and heresy not because their arguments sound so good. So many of them are seen to be ridiculous upon the slightest of biblical examination. As is evident here, the reason they draw is because their practices are attractive to our flesh and our pride, and our hunger for glory. It may be the penance of the Catholic or the pageant of the Protestant, but the works are made much of for our own glory. But let this consideration settle the matter again and again. And keep our weary souls from greater folly. We did not receive the Spirit by works of the law. But through hearing the gospel of Christ crucified with faith. The Spirit is not merited by us. He is graced because of Christ. And if we have the Spirit, it says we have Christ. And if we have Christ, we have all. Romans 8, 16-17, Paul tells us, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Father, may we stand fast beside and upon the gospel rock of Christ. We do not stand there. We do not stand at all. 
He is all our righteousness. He is all our sanctification. Every blessing, every promise finds its yes in Him and nowhere else. Thank you for the great gift of the Spirit that comes in Christ that assures us all is ours in Him. Praise be to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.